What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We are live on this uh, Vigil of Thanksgiving program. We are here to answer your questions, especially if you are a non-Catholic. Maybe you've got a question that you've been wrestling with for a while. Where do you get the answer for that question? You can get it right here. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Are you listening to us outside of North America? If so, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. That's a phone number just for you outside of uh, North America. Also, if you'd like to uh, send us an email rather than messing around with the phone, well, you can do that as well. Our uh, email address, ctc at ewtn.com. You can ping the show 24 hours a day that way, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Gabinski our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and uh, Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and then we can... Uh, move on with our lives here. Actually, it's Michael McCall who is handling a call screening today. Seems rather appropriate. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Doing great, thanks. Uh, plans for you for Thanksgiving? I know it's going to be family. Do you have other 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 folks that are going to come by? Nope, just just family and, you know, the typical Thanksgiving fair. And I'm, I'm one of the chefs. My mother and I will be cooking for the entire clan, so... Wow. That's the plan. Sounds great. So we've got uh, an interesting question or two here to lead us off. First one, this one is from Marcus, who lives in Malta in the Mediterranean. Uh, Marcus says, what happens if there are not enough sacred hosts to hand out at Holy Communion? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Usually they do a pretty good job of keeping that from happening. But, I mean, you can subdivide hosts. And that I've seen that done before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sometimes people will get like a half or a third, a quarter. It doesn't matter, right? Right, right. And then, you know, you, I used to play this game when I was a kid. You've probably done it, too. When someone was giving a lecture that I didn't want to listen to, I would draw a circle or a square and see how many times I could subdivide it. Love and of it. Of course, there's an infinite number of times you could subdivide something geometrically, but a finite number of times that you can actually do it with a ballpoint pen. Well, let's hopefully that the hard way. Yeah, well, let's hopefully we won't be dividing that pecan pie too many ways. Right. All right. This one, <laughs> excuse me, still recovering here. Uh, this one is a little more serious. This is from Joe, who says, "I was selling plastic moldings. I received a phone inquiry from for a custom plastic piece that would be used in abortion procedures." I asked a priest if I could tool and mold this part. The priest said that I could, just as I could sell a knife, even though someone might use that knife to kill someone. I disagree with this priest based upon the fact that I know that this plastic piece would definitely be used to kill the unborn. Who is correct? Yeah, thanks. I think you're right, and I think the priest is wrong. So there, there is something in Catholic moral theology called... Uh, 
remote material cooperation with evil. And that would be, you know, if I make if I make shotguns uh, that are that, that have a moral use, yeah. there's illicit use for shotguns, um, and uh, uh, but somebody gets a hold of one of my shotguns and uses it to commit a crime. Well, I, I didn't manufacture the gun for that purpose. It's been used in that way. I mean, I contributed material, but I'm very remote from the action itself. Sure. Here, you have been designed. You've been requested to specifically design a piece. It's not interchangeable with some other licit use. I mean, the intention of the design is is specifically to kill babies. That's a different thing. That that's that's no longer remote. Now you're intending. You're you're positively intending uh, the manufacture of a of a product that you know the only use of which is to kill children. Yeah, pretty specific. Appreciate that, and we hope that's a help for you, Joe. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Uh, Christian contacted us yesterday via YouTube. Couldn't get to Christian's question then. Here it is now. Uh, he says, my Christian friend wants to know, where in the Bible does it talk about purgatory? Yep, I'm going to answer that question. Before I do, however, I would like to ask your Christian friend, where in the Bible does it talk about the Bible? What I mean by that is the Bible that he holds in his hand when he goes to Sunday school on Sundays, the, the 66 books of the Protestant biblical canon. Where in the Bible does it talk about that Bible? Nowhere. Nowhere. Right? My point is that the, the demand that Catholics prove every Catholic doctrine by appealing to the Bible is itself an unbiblical doctrine that the Bible itself can't meet. It's a standard that the Bible itself doesn't meet. Right? So it's, it, 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 Jesus never said, when you want to know the Christian faith— Make sure you consult the Bible and the Bible alone. That's that's an unbiblical criterion. Okay. Nevertheless, I'm going to rise to that to that uh, that bait, and I will talk about purgatory as it's found in sacred scripture, with the knowledge that even if it weren't in sacred scripture, I wouldn't disbelieve it because Christ taught the doctrine through the Catholic Church that He founded. Right. But I will nevertheless demonstrate it from the Bible. Good man. It is analogous to asking the question, "Where is the Trinity in the Bible?" Because you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find the elements of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, namely the unicity of God, the deity of the Son, and the, and the separate personal identity of Father and Son. You pack all that together and you have the makings of a doctrine of a Trinity. In similar fashion, you will not find the word purgatory in the Bible. What you will find is the doctrine of penance and the notion that, uh, that both penance and, and moral purification are necessary for the vision of God. And that there is an intermediate state between death and the beatific vision in which the dead in Christ may benefit from the prayers of the Church. You, you put all those pieces together and you have the ingredients of purgatory. Now let okay. me show you where they are in the Bible. Yep. So th- the idea that you must do penance for sins, even those sins that have already been forgiven, clearly indicated two passages I really like are 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 24. These are occasions when David commits a grievous sin— He's confronted by the prophet. He repents. He's forgiven. God imposes a penance on him. Uh, as far as purification, Matthew chapter 5, Psalm 24, who can ascend the Lord's mountain or uh, stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Second Maccabees 12, in terms of prayer for those that are dead. Also, uh, uh, Paul's letters with Timothy, he prays for this dead friend of Nisiphorus. And uh, thank you for your question, Christian. Lines are open for you right now on this Wednesday, just before Thanksgiving, here on Call to Communion. 
called Communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We are live, not recorded today, so if you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let me tell you about something wonderful that is uh, offered. It's absolutely free, courtesy of us here at EWTN. It is the online learning series. You can discover the beauty, truth, and goodness of the church with our EWTN online learning series. Delve into the riches of the faith, grow closer to the Lord with free videos and study guides. One of these is called Women Made New. You'll be inspired by the stories of Crystalina Everett, Joy Pinto, Teresa Tamio, Cameron Frad, as you hear how God helped them overcome trials. And most importantly, you'll understand that the Lord will help you as well. Enroll in our courses today, again, absolutely free. Go to learningseries.ewtn.com. Let me give you that again. This is kind of a new thing for us. learningseries.ewtn.com. We're uh, taking your calls today at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, maybe you'd like to uh, ask yourself, hey, what is stopping me from becoming a Catholic? I know that there's Catholic family members I'm going to run into tomorrow uh, at the big Thanksgiving meal. Uh, What do I say to them? What are they going to say to me? You may have a question or two popping up in your mind there. Again, that phone number, 833 288-EWTN. Here's an email now from James who says, are Anglicans prohibited from receiving Holy Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Church? Under most circumstances, but not all. Okay. So all Protestants uh, are cannot receive communion in the Catholic Church, except in cases of, uh, of uh, possible death, if there's a, you know, kind of a mortal severity to, severity to the case, and the person in question has Catholic faith in the sacraments. So if there's danger of death and you have Catholic faith in the sacraments, then a Protestant could be admitted to Holy Communion, otherwise not. Okay. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Lulu is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Lulu says, Dr. Andrews, please explain dogma versus faith. I need more info. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So a dogma is a, uh, a truth of revelation— that has been solemnly proclaimed by the Catholic Church as a truth of revelation, something that God has revealed and the Church has declared is something that is obligatory for all Christians to believe. That is that is dogma. Faith is the subjective act of, of accepting what God has revealed. So if God reveals, for example, that is uh, uh, that he sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Faith accepts that is true and adheres to it. Okay. Appreciate that. Lulu, thanks for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with David, a first-time caller in Cleveland, listening on the great AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, David, a happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Amen. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you two gentlemen. Thank you. Um, quick question for you. It came up in the homily. And I just kind of pondered, um, the priest said, uh, God loves us all equally. And I thought to myself, it, it, didn't, it, it wouldn't matter to me if he loved me a little bit less than the guy next to me. Um, so does he love us all equally, or does it matter? Uh, t- talk to me about that. Okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, 
Scripture says in multiple places, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And, uh, you know, the whole notion of election, the election of Israel, the election of Christ, uh, you know, this is my beloved son with, in, with, with whom I am well pleased. Um, it is possible to, for, for God not to say of you, you're his beloved son with, you know, in whom he's well pleased. Uh, so, so definitely people can have uh, different relationships to God that, that may be characterized by more or less love or enmity. Now, what we can say with certainty is that God loves all humanity. The Gospel of John says God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So there's a sense in which God loves everyone. Um, but uh, uh, but clearly some people are elected to greater glory than others. I mean, it was through no virtue or merit on the part of, on the part of the Blessed Virgin Mary that God predestined her to be the mother of God. I mean, she didn't she didn't compel God to do that. Uh, that wasn't a response to Mary's holiness. That was God's predetermined decision to elect this virgin of of, uh, of Judea of Nazareth to become uh, the mother of God, and he granted her a dignity in view of that foreknowledge, namely the dignity of the Immaculate Conception, such that she would attain greater holiness than uh, than any other creature. Now, you and I are not the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> uh, no. right? We did not participate in that kind of election, that kind of predestination, nor are we the, the beneficiaries of that kind of grace. doesn't mean God doesn't love us, um, but it would be false. I mean, it would be false to say that he that he loves us the same as he loves the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's not true. Um, he loves us, right? But he hasn't elected us to the same kind of destiny that she has. Now, you know, you could you could try to to uh, kind of denude the word love of any kind of specificity and just say, well, you know, love just means that God has a benevolent disposition towards. And then in that case, well, yeah, he loves everybody. But if you if it actually comes with any teeth, if it if it results in any kind of concrete difference in the way God relates to people, then yeah, he loves some more than others. There you go. Uh, David, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like we have two lines open at the moment, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Let's go to Wayne now in New Orleans, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hello, Wayne. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, a question. Uh, yes. uh, see, a friend of mine, we're having a discussion. Uh, he said that the devil has full knowledge of the divinity of Christ because of uh, the casting out of the, you know, the pigs and other quotes in the Bible. And I said, I don't think he could have, because if he would, he wouldn't have help with the crucifixion, because that would be the end of his reign. So, what is the opinion of the Yeah, church? thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, St. Peter tells us in First Peter chapter 1, he's speaking of the prophets. He says, it was revealed to them, namely the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter says that when the Spirit of God moved the prophets to prophesy the coming of Christ, that the prophets themselves didn't know specifically what they were indicating. They didn't know what the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when they prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Um, Prophets didn't know. Uh, Even the angels didn't know. Uh, Paul writes at multiple places in the New Testament that 
the incarnation and the election of the Gentiles was a mystery hidden from the ages only now revealed in God's holy prophets and apostles. Uh, and Peter indicates that the angels themselves didn't have the, the full scoop on this story. So it seems reasonable for me to conclude that the devil, if, if the angels didn't know the whole story, that the devil and his angels didn't know the whole story either. Um, there, is a, uh, there is a patristic doctrine. Uh, you don't have to hold it. It's, it's, it's one of several opinions that's been circulated in Christian history about the nature of the atonement of the death of Christ. And it has often been called the ransom theory of the atonement, uh, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia and the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's the view of the atonement that C.S. Lewis puts into that novel. If you remember the story, uh, the White Witch of Narnia has all of Narnia under her control, and uh, according to divine right, she has uh, a claim on the blood of any traitor. And there's a boy named um, Edmund who trespasses against uh, his oath and in consequence, she has the right to kill him. And Aslan, who is the stand-in for Jesus in the story, comes by and says, well, here's an idea. Why don't you kill me and let him go? And she thinks that's a great deal. So she swaps out Aslan for, for Edmund, and she kills Aslan, not knowing that Aslan will be resurrected from the dead, and then he'll kill her, right? So the whole thing was a kind of trick on the devil. Uh, th there's actually a patristic view that sees the death of Christ in this way, that, uh, that the humanity of Christ was a kind of bait to attract the devil, and uh, that in that in killing Christ, that you know, death swallows the divinity along with the humanity, and then like a like a fish taking in a hook, gets his guts ripped out when Jesus rises from the dead. It's a very vivid image you find in some of the Eastern fathers, uh, but it presupposes the devil lacking full knowledge of Christ's divinity and authority. All right, and that's where we're going to leave it. Uh, Wayne, thanks so much for your call. It's called a communion here on this Wednesday afternoon on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Mike now, a first-time caller who is uh, driving, and he's heading back home to Sweet Home, Alabama, listening online EWTN.com. Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, how you doing? Call the communion. Um, I'm a longtime listener. I make this drive from Columbus Air Force Base back to Vestavia Hills every Friday. All right. Uh, my, my commute. And uh, I uh, came across a, actually, I saw a news article on EWTN this week about Magisterium AI. Hmm. So I checked it out. It's an app. It's in beta right now. It was released in August with about 800 documents uh, referenced. Now it's up to 6,000 documents, all church documents, extraordinary uh, and ordinary magisterium documents, and you can ask it a question or a prompt. And it gives pretty good answers. They're not nearly as, as explanatory and personalized as Dr. Andrews has done for me on, on the radio, but it's really good, and it's quick. And, I, and from what I've seen of it, been exposed to it, it's excellent. So I, I wanted to know if you, if you have uh, been exposed to it. I, I have heard about it. In fact, I'm staring at it right now. And really? while you were asking your question, I typed in the prompt, why is contraception wrong to Magisterium AI? Yeah. And I'm sitting here just scanning the answer, and it and it falls you know, pretty well in line with uh, Evangelium Vitae, Humana Vitae, uh, the Compendium, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So it, it cites, you know, one, two, three, four church documents from which it derived its uh, hmm. its answer. And so that's interesting. 
you know, the, the, the thing about this that, like, I, I wouldn't tell people not to use it. Go ahead, use it. That's fine. And since it gives you footnotes, you can go do research for yourself. Uh, this kind of resource, in my judgment, um, can't ever replace the kind of creativity that goes into hermeneutics, you know, and uh, take example the previous show, I mean, the previous uh, question that I got. Um, the uh, the ability to think creatively about diverse points of view within the tradition, uh, to understand them in their literary context, to draw analogies to modern literature. I mean, these are the kinds of things that a human being can do that as of yet, it doesn't seem that a AI does quite the same way. I think the way, I mean, I'm not a scientist, computer scientist, but I think AI just sort of scans the way people have answered questions on the internet before and then collates them. Um, it can be extremely useful, but there's still something to the, 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 the process of human creative research that I think you can't quite duplicate. I guess it was inevitable that there would be a product like this out there. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, the other thing about this that, that is, uh, you know, magisterium is more than the sum total of published Vatican documents. And it would include things like all the writings of the Church Fathers, mm -hmm. right? Um, scripture itself, and so the the data set of what would what counts as magisterium in Catholic theology is a lot broader than what magisterium AI is actually searching. Okay, appreciate that. And uh, Mike, drive carefully. Glad you're uh, heading back to sweet home Alabama. Let's go now quickly to uh, Evanessa, listening uh, in New Orleans on the Great Catholic Community Radio. Evanessa, what's on your mind today? Uh, I would uh, like to know if Dr. Anders could suggest a source that explains the symbolism in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I'm a big fan of it, and I know I've missed most of the symbolism. So if, if uh, he could give me a, um, uh, a source or suggested reading that would explain that, I'd oh, appreciate sure, it. Oh, sure, sure, sure. There's so many. There's, so many. there's, there's a, there's a C.S. Lewis Society that's been publishing academic research on Lewis for, you know, for decades, and so I can't possibly cover all the ground that you would need. Um, uh, here's a book that I very much want to read myself, and I've only— glanced at what I can read for free online. You know, they usually give you a sample, and I'm, it's on my reading list to get to. It's called Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis uh, by Michael Ward, published by Oxford University Press. Hmm. And uh, it, it, this is not going to cover all of the symbolism, but he's got a theory about the seven novels and, and the way they worked in Lewis's imagination and he tries to line them up with uh, with ancient and medieval cosmology and astrology. And I think there's some uh, some compelling evidence that Lewis thought in those terms. Now, you know, one of the things about C.S. Lewis was that the man was was probably one of the best read people on the planet. He had a nearly photographic memory. He had a very small library in his house because he only needed to read a book once and he could remember it. And wow. there are anecdotes about people, you know, going to Lewis and asking him a literary question and he could, you know, reach on the shelf behind him and, and pull a book off the shelf and turn to an exact page and, 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 and find the quote. Mm -hmm. Or even better, he could quote it from memory, and then you pull it off the shelf, and there it is. I mean, he yeah. really he could absorb an enormous amount of literature. Wow. He was, uh, uh, of course, he was a polyglot. He re read in many different languages, and he had a practically encyclopedic knowledge of, of mythology of ancient medieval literature. And so all of that, all of that gets poured into... His fiction, he was able to reduce that into these symbolic forms that were appropriate for children in a modern audience. Um, uh, another book you might want to read is The Discarded Image. Um, this is a book by Lewis. It's an introduction to medieval literature. 
But what he does is he really tries to explicate what is the medieval worldview uh, and, and, and the significance of it for appreciating medieval literature. But if you read that, you'll get a sense of what his imaginative role was like that would have fed into Narnia. So Planet Narnia and then the discarded image. A couple of great resources for you, Evanessa. You might also keep C.S. Lewis in your prayers. He passed away 60 years ago today. Was today? Today, along with John F. Kennedy. Oh my. Back, lots more on Call to Communion. It's called to Communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Wednesday afternoon. We are live here on EWTN as we uh, get ready for... Um, a little bit of pumpkin pie, uh, apple pie. Our, our producer, Rich, was talking about uh, making a mean apple pie today. Well, okay, but uh, I'm sure David's going to keep voting for that pecan pie in absentia, right? Yep, in absentia. Yep, yep, absolutely. Very good. Hey, don't forget our friends at Divine Mercy Radio in Kansas and our friends at Guadalupe Radio Network need to hear from you next week. Divine Mercy Radio airing their fall carathon. Guadalupe Radio airing their Christmas share and both of those next Tuesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Kansas, they're on a number of stations there, Divine Mercy Radio is, uh, or on any of the 45 Guadalupe stations serving Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, D.C., Virginia, Alabama, or Florida, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. All right, back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to Bradley, a first-time caller in Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Bradley. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I have a question, and, it's, you know, it's, it's the month of November, and um, my parish does something very special. Um, a few years back, they found uh, this beautiful shadow box full of relics. Um, and they put it on display during the month of November. Um, so my question to you um, is really an apologetic question. Is um, we're looking at these, you know, these bone fragments, and, and you go to the JP Chief Shrine, and they have, you know, his blood and that sort of thing. How can we reconcile or teach or um, explain? Um, the veneration of relics versus the teaching on, well, we don't scatter ashes because yep. of this, and this is yep. the way that we treat our buried bodies. Yep. So what is the most simplistic um, rationale? I got you. I'm totally with you, 100%. I really appreciate the question. So for, for most people, the act of scattering ashes uh, implies something like the following. Well, you know... Uh, Dear old dad really loved, you know, the Smoky Mountains. And so we're going to scatter his ashes on the Smoky Mountains so that he can he can be at peace in the Smoky Mountains. All right, he's going to be at one with the Smoky Mountains. Or we're going to scatter his ashes and we're going to release his spirit to heaven. He, you know, the body is done away with and off dad floats up into the sky. Something to that effect. Or maybe if you're a Hindu... I'm going to dispose of ashes, say, in the sacred river of the Ganges in the hopes of effecting a favorable reincarnation, something like that. Well, all of those reasons to scatter ashes are very different from the reasons that Catholics venerate relics. Uh, we don't, we're not trying to mingle someone's spirit with, you know, with the trees. We're not trying to release their soul to heaven. We're not trying to effect... A, uh, a favorable reincarnation. The, the rationale for venerating relics is the biblical and Christian teaching 
that the bodies of Christians are made one with the body of Christ, that we, that we become the body of Christ. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't go in for prostitution, because if you do, then you unite the body of Christ with the prostitute. That, that's how realistic the biblical view is of our union with Christ. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the Zadokim, which is basically the, the Hebrew idea of, of the saint, persons, this, these, uh, these noble individuals like Moses or Elijah or Elisha, came to be physically indwelt by the power of God, uh, the Shekinah glory of God. Moses so much so that you couldn't look at his face. He had to veil his face. The body of Elisha, after he dies, comes into contact with a corpse and brings it back to life. The idea that the body itself could be imbued by the presence and power of God. And, of course, the belief that those bodies would be raised again on the last day. The doctrine of bodily resurrection is an Old Testament as well as a Christian doctrine. And so the, the veneration of relics is witness to our belief that these bones will again live because of their union to Christ and that the holiness of the saint pervades not only the spirit but the physical body. Uh, and so it is the, the, the motivation for venerating relics is basically the flat opposite of the motive for uh, the scattering of ashes, which is basically to say the body itself doesn't matter. Whereas the Christian doctrine is the body, the body is of literally of, uh, of eternal significance. Okay. Appreciate that, uh, Bradley. We hope that's helpful. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Chris now, first-time caller in Kansas, watching us today on Facebook. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, doctor. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, on my mind today is the... Uh, What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? And my concern is more so uh, what's stopping us from continuing our Catholic faith. And I have to be honest, mine's, uh, my Catholic faith is at test right now. And um, it comes after a trigger of watching the uh, Take Care of Maya case, where the parents were falsely accused of um, putting ketamine into the body of Christ and the Children's Hospital and the Social Services accepting that as an excuse to withhold the body of Christ from the child in the hospital. And I as well suffer from my children being cut off from me and by the secular laws um, isolating God from my children. And I'm just kind of hoping that we can put that missing link together that... uh, there's secular laws out there that are not aligning with the uh, with the laws of, of of our Savior, and He died on the cross for a reason that us parents and children should be able to continue our baptismal promises for our children. And it's really sad to see that a child was cut off from the body of Christ. I'm just wondering if that's a whole different conversation, but I do see that as a presentation of what's stopping our children from being able to continue their Catholic faith and us parents being forced out of baptismal promises. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. And let me say off the bat that this is not obviously uh, just an abstract speculative question on your part. This is a deeply felt, very personal source of suffering in your life. And you have my deepest sympathy and my deepest empathy, because I I can relate to what you're saying, and I feel these kinds of things myself. Um, I want to answer this at two different levels. One, I want to talk about the problem of suffering in general, 
and and how we can cope with our faith and the belief in a merciful God in the light of suffering. And then this specific evil of when the suffering that's imposed upon us seems particularly aimed at cutting off our communion with with Christ as we find him manifest in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And how can I cope with that as a parent if I think that God's will is for everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and practice the Catholic faith? And why would he allow some third party, some some distant agent to interfere with that and block the faith of little children who, who aren't choosing this themselves as being imposed upon them? Uh, when it comes to the question of suffering in general, uh, suffering is a profound mystery. And the response to suffering that says, I can't find God anywhere in here. God seems absent in this. Uh, doesn't make sense to me. That sentiment is in fact canonized. What I mean by that is that you find that sentiment expressed in the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and two texts in particular come to mind. One would be the entire book of Ecclesiastes, where the sacred writer is experiencing something of an existential crisis and seems to find life on its own terms meaningless. Uh, the other one would be Psalm 88. And the psalmist, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is suffering enormously. He's been cut off. Uh, he's been alienated from his friends. He's been alienated from God, from the temple, and he, he seems bereft of all consolation. And he says, God, you're not here. And the psalm ends with, my one companion is darkness. Amen. There's no resolution to the dilemma. There's just, his, just his, his anguished cry of alienation and alienation from God, period. Amen. Uh, in the modern period, we can find saints, doctors of the church, that have confronted this same kind of dilemma. Uh, Therese of Lisieux, in her story of the soul, and she is a doctor of the church, recounts an extended period of time where she struggled mightily with the temptation to atheism, and spoke about how heaven, the life of the saints, uh, the blessed in heaven, that all these kinds of thoughts did not console her. They were a torture to her, and she couldn't bear to hear them. Mother Teresa, probably the most celebrated saint of the 20th century, we now know after her death because of her writings that she gave to her spiritual director that had been published post-mortem, confess very much the same kind of thing. But unlike Therese of Lisieux, where this trial lasted for a few months, it seems that for Mother Teresa it lasted for decades. Mm. And she said, you know, I feel like uh, the God doesn't exist. And uh, I, I think the context in which she lived, the, just the, um, the, enormous, the enormity of the human suffering that she dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis must have contributed to that sense of uh, the loss of the sense of the presence of God. Now, why am I telling you this? All right, because... From the Catholic Church's point of view, faith in God and a vigorous spiritual life and growth in the virtues is compatible, is compatible with the subjective sense that God is absent. And in fact, that sense of alienation and desperation may in fact be quite sanctifying hmm. and an opportunity for us to identify with Christ in his own experience of dereliction. And one thing that you find when you go through this kind of existential horror is that very often it tends to make you come out the other side more compassionate and less judgmental. And in my judgment, and I think this is based on the documents of the Church and the writings of the Fathers, the goal of the Christian life is not to be right, it is to be loving. 
And so sometimes the best path to getting there is to have all my confidence and all my assurances demolished and to be left bereft. And I've experienced this. I'm not saying that I came out the other side wholly, but I'm saying, like, I, when you suffer enormously, it tends to make you more compassionate. Sure. And that ultimately is the end of the Christian faith. Um, is that an adequate justification for suffering? I wouldn't say that. And logically, it's very hard to rationalize the existence of egregious suffering with the benevolence of God. We could talk about that another time. All right. Christ himself entered into suffering with us, however, to make us holy. When it comes to the specific problem that you raise, namely, I have this desire for my kids to be raised Catholic, and yet for, for reasons that are beyond their control and mine, maybe it's the malevolence of the state, I see them uh, being taken away from the Catholic Church. How can I reconcile that? All I can tell you is that we teach as Catholics that God loves your children more than you do. He loves my children more than I love my children. Uh, and, and that uh, he gives sufficient grace to every human being that they might be saved, sometimes in a way known only to God himself. And your own suffering, your own agony over this, may in fact be one of the chief instrumental causes of bringing them to holiness in ways that you may never see. Yeah. Chris, God bless you, sir, uh, and your family as well. Thanks so much for your call. We hope that is helpful for you. It's called a communion here on EWTN this weekend. Be sure to join us for the Catholic Sphere. That is coming up Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. This week, Debbie Cowden and her panel of experts help parents discuss human sexuality with their kids according to church teaching and God's plan for humanity. Again, that's Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Going now to John in Greenville, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. John, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, gentlemen. Um, Dr. Andrews, I've got a quandary with some things that I've heard that have come out of the Synod, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've heard it pronounced in various ways, but anyways, I... I, my personal beliefs, I'm a cradle Catholic, my personal beliefs and my religious beliefs, I feel are at odds with how the Holy Father is trying to be more inclusive of individuals in the Holy Sacrament. And I don't have anything against any of these individuals, their way of life. I don't, you know, want to get involved with that. I just find it kind of depressing that, um, you know, we're allowing people who don't make good decisions in life to uh, become or enter into some of our, our, our sacraments that I, I don't believe I, that I've been brought up that, you know, you, you should not have, you should not do some of the things that the Holy Father is now I, I'm not uh, professing, but, you know, is now looking, I guess, the other way at. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. Um, you know, as a cradle Catholic, sure. how do I talk to my friends who aren't Catholic? Sure. That's... Yeah, I think I can help you. I appreciate it. Let me draw a couple of distinctions here. Uh, one, I want to distinguish the synod uh, on synodality, on the one hand, from the person of the Holy Father uh, on the other, into the question of church policy on, on, on third, okay? First of all, with respect to the Synod on Synodality, I 
have read a lot of news coverage about the synod on synodality that is hysterical. <laughs> I don't mean funny. I mean like the writers have been captured by a kind of hysteria, a kind of uh, anti-synod hysteria uh. in which they imagine that the synod of bishops is the most pernicious and evil thing on the planet designed to do nothing but undercut the deposit of faith and destroy the people of God and admit all kinds of everything into the church and on and on and on. And it's apocalyptic in its prognostications about the harm that's going to come. And I've seen a lot of that kind of coverage. Then I see what comes out of the synod. Like, what actual documents have emerged, and the only one I'm aware of so far that's actually been published was an open letter to the people of God published by the General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops. Okay. And while that was un an unusual literary form, synods of bishops don't usually publish open letters to the people of God, I strongly recommend that you go read it. I read it, and I, I, I work for a Catholic diocese, and I sat around with my colleagues, all of whom are, you know, Orthodox and faithful Catholics, you know, to the last man and woman among them. And we read this document, and we went, yeah, that pretty much is what we need. That pretty, I mean, it was calling for great, for conversion, for a missionary spirit, um, for the church to make better use of the laity, and lay church employees in particular, you better believe we liked that one, in, uh, in discerning you know, how best to meet the needs of the people of God. There was nothing controversial. There was nothing... Um, uh, anti-traditional in there, except to call for greater holiness and greater effectiveness in uh, in the task of the apostolate. Um, and many of the things that the synod has been accused of trying to foment, well, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, uh, either either the bishops or the pope have come out and said the exact opposite. So in almost every case where some prognostication was made about this is going to be the evil outcome, what's actually come out of the Vatican has been the opposite. Right? So I... I you just don't follow the hysterical uh, 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 journalism. Go read the documents. That would be my first thing. Sure. Um, secondly, when it comes to the question of the Holy Father and uh, what his agenda is, uh, the way I interpret Pope Francis after watching him for 10 years is that he is concerned, as I am concerned, that some of the status quo ways in which we do church, uh, I particularly see this in North America— has been ineffective in uh, in in transmitting the spirit of the gospel, hmm. and in my country, in the United States, just looking at the say things like the Pew Research data on the number of people that leave the Catholic Church annually, which is just a mammoth number. I mean, the bleed out of Catholicism is huge. Suggests that we could be doing better. And the challenge to rethink how we do our actual practical ministry, not change our doctrine, but re re retool our practices, mm -hmm. and especially with respect to evangelization and education and maybe parish management, things like that, we, we could make a ton of progress. And a lot of what I've read from Francis is uh, analysis of that, that kind of dynamic. W what are we doing wrong? What could we be doing better? Mm. I haven't seen anything that suggests that Francis has changed one doctrine of the Church. Now, there's no doubt that in disposition, Francis is, is far more liberal, meaning kind of open to change. I don't mean that in a necessarily ideological way, but in a more open to change way hmm. than some of his predecessors were. I mean, absolutely no doubt about that at all. And, uh, and that, that disposition is a personality trait, and people tend to fall along a continuum in their personality traits. And, and that's going to translate into... You know, one uh, one executive leader of any organization is going to have a different set of policies than another, and their own personal temper, and it's going to play into that. I, as a lay Catholic, 
understand that the that the that the personality of the pope is not something that I have to place Catholic faith in. And when I look at 2,000 years of Catholic history, I see popes that I think have done things brilliantly, th- popes that have done things very foolishly, some popes who have done things that could only be assessed in hindsight, maybe a century later, really evaluated in light of history, and that all of those vagaries of human personality and policy are really not the essentials of what it means to be a Catholic. I mean, how much do we care today about some of the matters that would have been of great significance to people in, say, the 11th century? And, and we, we sit back today and we look at those kinds of issues and we, we, we really don't have a dog in the fight. You know, but to the people of the time, it was life or death stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we were a bit more detached from that. And we say, well, you know, okay, in dogma, maybe this pope taught this thing dogmatically, and so that's now entered into the patrimony of the church and gets handed down in Denzigans and Caridian. But for the rest of it, it kind of passes into the sands of time. And I just have a much more relativistic view of the papacy and, its, and, its, and the role that it plays in, in Catholic history. Practically, we have to give a religious submission of mind and will to the Holy Pontiff, uh, and that's fine. He calls the shots because he's the pope. But I mean, he's you know he's one of how many popes are we on now? How many hundreds of popes? Two hundred sixty-five. Two hundred sixty-five. Like and that, you know, yeah. we may have another two hundred sixty-five before the Jesus comes back. And I mean, I like Pope Francis, and I, I think a lot of what he's done is great. But you know, you don't you're not obligated to like the pope or his policies. I mean, Cardinal Newman, who uh, Pope Francis, uh, well, actually, yeah, he did make a saint. I guess Benedict made him beatified, and then Francis canonized him. Um, Newman famously hated the guts of Pius the Ninth. Wow. Could not stand the man. And uh, I, I would tell you more, but it wouldn't be very edifying to say okay. what Newman had to say about Pius the Ninth. But go look him up. Newman really didn't like Pius the Ninth. Really didn't like him. And yet, uh, and was vocal about it. And yet mm. Leo Thirteenth made him a cardinal. You know, so so like, it's okay. It's okay for a Catholic to say, you know, I think my pastor made a really bad move in maybe this religious ed curriculum that we used in the parish. Mm-hmm. He got that one from the wrong publisher. He should have bought it from the EW10 religious catalog, but he got it from those other people, and it's <laughs> not any good. You know, it's a bad pastoral call. There's nothing wrong with a lay Catholic having those kinds of opinions, as long as you know that since he's the pastor, he's the one that gets to order the curriculum. And you can go bang on his door and go, Pastor, you got the wrong book. You should have got this other book, and... He might listen to you, or you might not, but at the end of the day, he's the one that's going to order the books. Yeah. John, thanks so much for your call. Art is in Covington, Kentucky, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Art. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you. I wish you and Dr. Andrews a good, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. My question basically is about original sin. The Church tells us about the Trinity, and the Church tells us about guardian angels. And the church tells us about purgatory, and you answer these questions all the time, especially about purgatory. My question about original sin is, in Genesis, God said he would send someone to uh, do away with our sins or whatever. But why don't the church say that when he died on the cross on Good Friday, that he took away original sin? yeah, okay. thanks. appreciate the question. Well, um, uh, because, well, depending on how you mean the fr- question, uh, he didn't take away original sin when he died on the cross. Original sin is the lack of sanctifying grace in our soul. And the death of Christ on the cross made it possible for God to grant the gift of sanctifying grace to everyone who believes. 
But you have to do the believing, right? So what Christ accomplished on the cross is what we call the objective redemption. But subjectively, it has to be applied to me. So the stain of original sin is not removed from me personally until, I have, uh, until I'm baptized. The act of faith and baptism remits original sin in my case. Now, that's possible because of the death of Christ. But the death of Christ does not automatically remit original sin from every living soul. It has to be applied subjectively to the soul through faith in the sacraments. All right. Art, thanks so much for your call. Here is Mary in Spartanburg, South Carolina, listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Mary, what's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I want to wish a happy Thanksgiving to both of you and Thank you. tell you how much I do appreciate your show so much. Thank you. And do we know how old Christ was at his presentation in the temple? Yeah, and, I think so. I think that the book of Leviticus says that this event takes place 40 days after the birth of, birth of a male child. So I think he was 40 days old. There you go, Mary. And uh, this call now from Charles in Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Charles, just a few seconds left. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I've been told that people with severe anguish and everything are in the seventh circle of hell. And I was wondering if hell is actually broken down into different circles. Thank you. Only according to Dante's Inferno, which Uh is a work of, uh, of poetic fiction. So there's nothing in Catholic dogma. That, that differentiates uh, uh, the levels of hell in this way, but there is something in Catholic literary imagination. Okay. Charles, thanks so much uh, for your call. Couldn't get to Isabella in Twins Fall, Twin Falls, Idaho. Uh, Isabella, if you could please call us back on our next live show, which will be on Monday. Dr. David Andrews, have a blessed Thanksgiving. You too, Tom. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Let's remind everybody that we know we are all so, so blessed. And we have so much to be grateful and thankful for, uh, especially uh, right now. I'm Tom Price, along with our fantastic team today, Charles, Michael, and Jeff. My thanks to you guys uh, for keeping us cooking here on the radio for our live program today. Next live one is going to be on Monday. Hope to see you then. Got some great uh, mailbag programs tomorrow and Friday. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Have that great Thanksgiving. God bless. <laughs>